soil health and cultivation. And we kind of put these two together. It's talking about cultivation here is actually almost jumping a little bit ahead because it's talking about, you know, caring for plants that you already have in. In the next session, we'll talk about starting your own plants and seeding and transplanting and that kind of stuff. But it fits in connection with the soil health and, and managing your soil of your garden. So they're kind of tied together. Um, and we're going to hit up on some of those questions about, you know, how do you deal with weeds in a no-till system? How do you... How do you move from one crop to the next crop? How do you transition if you're not going to get in there with a rototiller or something like that? So we're going to be touching on those in this session. Hey, they set up a, a little extender, so I think the clicker should be working now. Oh, great. Okay, is that you yeah. picking me up now? Okay. All right. So we're going to, um, in this session, we're going to... Last session, we, we started introducing six principles for soil health. The first one was minimal disturbance. And we're going to continue with the, the remaining principles and then get into some additional things. So we're, we're finishing the six principles and then we're going to talk about managing weeds using a no-till approach and transitioning from one crop to the next. How do you do that if you're, if you're not practicing tillage? So the first principle was minimal disturbance. The next principle is armor. Some people call it armor on the soil. Um, some other people I've been reading call it God's blanket. Um, uh, a common name is is mulch <laughs> so we're what are the advantages of of doing that um and i want to just give credit again real quick since this is a new session and for those listening later some of these slides are from gabe brown he is uh one of the associates of um Understanding Ag and Soil Health Academy, which are excellent resources on understanding soil health and biology. Um, wonderful places to go. Uh, they are Christians, a Christian-based organization uh, that have grown. Uh, actually, I think we have a slide in here of Gabe's farm later on. Um, that a soil test that was done on Gabe's farm. So we're going to be sharing that. But special thanks to him for letting us use some of his slides here. So, you see this field that was just recently tilled. Um, the soil is naked, hungry, thirsty, and running a fever. <laughs> um, you know, God did not intend for us to be naked. And he did not intend for the earth to be naked either. And, um, you know, when, when Adam and Eve discovered that they were naked, their, their, their first action was to try to figure out how to cover it up. And, um, you know, that's, that's the natural response. And that's the natural response that the earth takes also. When the earth discovers that it's naked, it wants to cover up. Um, 
And so that's, that's why weeds and, and things like that grow. And by the way, when it said, because I don't know if, this is, if we have this later on, when it says that it is running a fever... We, we will talk. You will talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that. All right. So um, here's some, some things that you, you might see uh, maybe on your land, maybe around you. Have you ever seen a, a crust on the soil? Um, that's a sign that something's not right. Have you ever seen soil that was just like powder? You know, just runs through your fingers. Or have you ever seen pictures of the dust bowl where it's just like this <laughs> cloud of dust? That's a sign that something's not right, okay? That's a sign that, that, that you don't have that good aggregation in the soil that we were talking about in the last session. Um, having something on the soil will buffer against heat. Why would that be important? Um, at 70 degrees, this is, this is soil temperature. At 70 degrees soil temperature, 100% of the moisture can be used for growth for the plants. At 100 degrees temperature, soil temperature, 15% of the moisture is used for growth and 85% is lost to evaporation and transpiration. Okay? We, we are wanting to maximize growth in our plants. Uh, we want them to... Why do we want to maximize growth? Well, generally, the bigger the plant is, the more it's going to yield, right? That's our, our intention. But also, the bigger the plant is, the more, the bigger the root system is going to be, right? And, and the bigger the root system, the more exudates you have pumping into the soil, okay? And, and so, um, I, want, I want you to start thinking about the roots. <laughs> Don't just think about the plant and the fruits. Got to think about the roots. Um, a, good, a good, large, healthy root system is putting more exudates into the soil. You're, you're getting a healthier soil. Um, at 130 degrees, 100% of moisture is lost through evaporation and transpiration. Um, at 140 degrees, the soil biology is seriously affected. I think that even at like 130 degrees, you already get soil biology that is starting to, yeah, to die yeah. and stuff, but it gets severely affected when you get up high. Yeah. Um, so, um, if you have a mulch, if you have something covering the soil, that's going to keep it cooler. That's just intuitive, right? Um, so, it's an insulation, insulator. Yeah. So that, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about, about you actually using mulches, but that's a principle. Keeping something on the soil keeps the soil cooler and um, it, it, it helps with, uh, well, it, 
It improves the biology of the soil. It improves the growth of the plants because it's cooler. And uh, it also keeping the soil covered is, is going to reduce, um, reduce uh, erosion and runoff. You know, when, when rain comes down, those, those drops can be coming, uh, I mean, coming at, at real force. You know, in the, in the southeast, we, we get heavy thunderstorms and sometimes really big raindrops. They're coming down. They hit the ground. They just pummel the ground. And um, if your soil is loose, like it's recently plowed, um, it'll... Uh, It'll, it'll break that soil up and, and carry that soil away. If you have the soil covered, uh, the, the, the mulch on the surface is going to break the force of those raindrops so that it, they, don't, they don't hit the soil directly. And, and the water that, that comes down um, just kind of percolates down instead of hitting it hard. And you're going to get more infiltration instead of runoff. And you'll have a lot less to know, uh, what's it called, where the soil gets washed away. Erosion. Erosion, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the third principle of, of soil health is diversity. What do you see in this picture? How many different types of plants do you see there? Okay, that, that, that picture is a, is a cover crop that was, it's a multi-species cover crop. Um, Dr. Adamer Caligari, he's a, I we have some Brazilians here, I think. He's a, he's a Brazilian who is um, probably the, the top research scientist on cover crops in the world. And um, he made this statement, cover crops um, I can't, should be seeded as multi-species cocktails. So on our farm, we had, we had practiced cover cropping and we, we initially started cover cropping with a sowing single species cover crops. Just as a quick, um, as a quick uh, description for anyone who might not know what a cover crop is, a cover crop is basically something that you grow in your garden space when y you want to keep that garden space covered. Remember, we want roots in the soil, but let's say you don't, you're not going to grow something to eat right at that time. So, for example... You can grow a cover crop over the winter if you decide not to have a winter garden. You can grow a cover crop over the winter that covers that space in your garden over the winter that otherwise would be bare if you had just pulled out all of your other, uh, all of your other yeah. garden uh, produce. So um, farmers will make a distinction between cover crops and cash crops. Cash crops are crops that you grow to sell and cover crops are grown to improve the soil. Yeah. And in your home garden, you can do the same thing, except it's, you know, it's a difference between, it's not a cash crop, it's a, it's a home consumption crop versus a crop that's grown to improve your soil. Yeah. Um, so, Gabe Brown 
um, listened to uh, Dr. Caligari at a conference. He heard him make that statement, and he decided to go home and, and try out what he had said. And so he, he, he laid out some um, demonstration plots, and he, he took uh, a multi-species cocktail, <laughs> you know, and, and he, he separated it out so that he, he did demonstration plots with each seed by itself, and then he did a couple plots with them all mixed together. This, this is a picture of one of those single species crops, turnips, in July 30. When, when he did this, he, he sowed them in the spring. He'd had a, they had had a very dry winter, and, and they had less than half an inch of rain um, after he seeded them. So it, it, they, this is in North Dakota. It's a very dry environment. And, and um, even for North Dakota, I think it was a drought. Like, yeah, it, it was less than they usually get. Right. Um, he, another, another seed species was oilseed radish. That's what it looked like on July 31. Um, but this is what the, the cover crop mix looked like. The, the same soil types... The, the same growing conditions side by side, it was a huge difference. What, why, why does that difference exist? Same amount of rain, right? They both got yeah, that half the same inch amount of, of rain. Of water. What's going on here? It's the, somebody said symbiosis. It, it, it's the life in the soil. And um, remember, we were talking about mycorrhizal fungi being able to, to um, extend the, the reach of plants through, through their hyphae and, and how those hyphae even connect plant to plant. And um, I don't know all the mechanics of how it actually works, but, but that plays a large role with a, with a multi-species um, group of plants growing in the field, the, the microbiology is encouraged and that microbiology, the, the plants are able to help each other out and um, they're, they're able to source what they need better as, as a multi-species mix rather than a single species on their own. Um, so I, to me, this was really amazing. <laughs> So this, these, this is his results. Um, you see each, each one on their own and then the cocktail mix. And it's, it's interesting that the, the, um, the cocktail mix at, at half the seeding, the recommended seeding rate seemed to actually do better than, than the full seeding rate. But you can see there's a, there's a huge difference in the amount of... Um, uh, plant Volume. material that that they were able to get off of off of each of those plots between the multi-species and the single species. Um, not only do the fungi provide for the needs of one plant, but the fungal hyphae pipeline connect to multiple plants. 
This helps satisfy the nutritional and energy needs of microorganisms and the plants. Um, Chris Nichols is a soil scientist at, the, um, at an agriculture research station in, in North Dakota. So this is, this is a, a, a picture of another field with a, a single species and a multi-species side by side. And again, you can see a huge difference. Um, this chart here is very interesting. Um, so on the, on the vertical axis, you can see we're talking about plant biomass, bio um, grams per square meter. And on this axis, we're talking about species diversity. That's the number of different species. So, um, and this is the number of species added. So it's given that you have one species, you add a second species to it, um, so that would be the one species. A second species increases the plant biomass significantly. A third species also increases it significantly. A fourth one is here. I don't know if that's four or five. Anyways, um, seven or eight is here. Fifteen is here. So you can see that um, following that curve, if you want to maximize plant biomass in a, in a cover crop, um, if, you, if you can get seven or eight species in there, you're, you're nearing the top of the curve here. Um, you know, you can, you can continue adding species there, but it's not gonna make a, a huge difference past that. But um, to get maximum, you, you, you would like to have at least you know, six, seven, eight different species growing together. This one, this chart looks very similar. The, the difference here is, is this. We're talking about functional diversity. Um, there, there are different functional groupings of plants. So you have um, legumes. They, Who remembers what legumes do? Fix nitrogen. nitrogen. Yeah, you okay. got it. Uh, and then you have grasses. You know, wheat, rye, corn, um, sorghum. These are all grass varieties. Um, they're they're another functional grouping. Um, then you can you have broadleafs, like your a lot of your greens are, are, are broadleafs, um, you know, kale, cabbage, uh, things like that. And then you have what they call forbs. That actually, that, that includes a lot of um, uh, things we, we'd consider weeds, but also things like sunflower and, and things like that. Um, so these are, and then you have uh, your herbaceous, uh, woody things, plants, which would inc include shrubs and trees. So 
as you, as you increase functional diversity, your, your plant biomass increases as well. So, for example, if you, if you have a diversity of grasses that you planted, um, you're, you're not going to, you just have the one functional group. But if you add grasses and legumes together, you have two functional groups. You're, you're increasing your, your biomass. And if you add um, broadleaf, uh, some, some broadleaf species, then you're, you're increasing it more. So by the time, if you can get three or four different functional groups in your, in your cover crop mix, then you're also doing, you're maximizing your, um, your plant biomass potential. So, a key strategy in sustainable agriculture is to restore functional biodiversity of the agricultural landscape. Biodiversity performs key ecological services and if correctly assembled in time and space, can lead to ecosystems capable of sponsoring their own soil fertility, crop protection, and productivity. Um, basically what that's saying is that by, by using the power of diversity, uh, you can solve a lot of your, your growing needs. That, I mean, that, that diversity um, works out what you need. And um, just to illustrate that in a very common way, you know, we, in our gardens, we're usually trying to grow one crop. And so, at a time, in a, in, in a, in a place. And, and so, we, we end up, putting a lot of, of work into trying to figure out how to, how to coax that crop to do well. But um, if you go out into, the, into a natural setting, into the woods, you don't find one crop growing by itself. You find a diversity growing together. And they don't need any coaxing whatsoever, do they? They just do it naturally. <laughs> and so, there, there is something about that, that diversity that, that really encourages um, growth. And, and that diversity drives soil health. It, it's very significant for the, the health of the soil. Um, you know, if you're, if you're interested in growing in, in increasing your mycorrhizal um, fungi in the soil, these are some, some crops that encourage mycorrhizal growth. It's not limited to these crops, but these crops are especially good at encouraging mycorrhizal growth. Oats, barley, flax, clovers, and sunflowers. And um, you can see right here, this is... If you were to plant a, a, a cover crop with these, um, with these components, you're, you've got um, oats and barley. That's one functional group, right? The, your grasses. Flax is another functional group. 
I, I believe that would be Forbes. Clovers is um, legumes. legumes. And then sunflowers would be, um, I think that, I, I don't either remember. Either a Forb if, or a broadleaf. Yeah, it's either a Forb or a broadleaf. But anyways, I, we've got four, four functional classes there in that. So um, you could sow a cover crop of those, four, of those plants and that, that would really encourage uh, mycorrhizal growth in your soil. Um, a fourth, the fourth principle is to keep living roots in your soil as long as possible. You know, it's, it's not always possible to keep a living root in your soil as we're, as we're transitioning from one crop to another and going through seasons. Um, it, it's not always possible to work that out, but as much as you can, you want to have a living root in your soil. Um, why is that? Because you, you want to maximize, you know, the, you, every, every plant that you have growing in your garden is, is a solar collector, right? It's, it's collecting solar energy and it's turning that solar energy into what? One of the things is liquid carbon that we talked about, right? And where, where is that liquid carbon going, at least part of it? It's going down to the roots as exudates. And what are those exudates doing? They're feeding the microbes. They're feeding the mycorrhizae. They're, yeah. And, and, and then what are those microbes doing to the plant? They're feeding the plant, yeah. So <laughs> you have a system going there. So the, the, more, the more living plants, the more solar collectors you have, the more root exudates you have, the more microbes you have in your soil, and, and you have a system going. Um, yeah, so you want to, when you, when you don't have living roots in the soil, what happens? You don't have fresh exudates going down. The microbes don't have food. You know, you're not going to, the, the whole population isn't going to die, but it's going to reduce and they're going to go into hibernation and things like that. And um, it, it'll take a while to get the whole system up and running again when you want, to, want it to. Um, if you want to keep it jump-started, keep it going, you keep living roots in the soil. So we just talked about that. Um, another thing is that uh, roots build organic matter and they cycle nutrients. We, we talked about that in, in how the, in the rhizophagy cycle and how the, the roots ingest the microbes and, and spit them out again. So um, but, but they also, they also build organic matter in the sense that, let's say you harvest your lettuce plant. Let's just say you cut off the whole lettuce head, right? And then all of those roots are still there in the soil if you don't pull all of those roots out, they will decompose in the soil, adding organic matter to the soil and actually adding more porous spaces in the soil because as they decompose, they open up air pockets. Yes. So 
you know, we, we used to, in our, in our gardening, when we finished with a, a plant, like a, a broccoli plant, we'd pull the whole thing out, roots and all. Um, as I started understanding this stuff, I, I said, hey, wait a minute. I don't want to pull those roots out of my soil. You know, for one thing, when I, when I pull the roots out, I'm, I just yanked organic material out of the soil. But secondly, you know, they, they've been fostering this microbial population, and I'm probably pulling out a bunch of those microbes as well. So I'd rather leave them all in the soil. So now I, I just take a loppers and, and lopper them off and leave it in the soil. Now, if you're... Um, you, you've got a, you know, if, if, if it's a broccoli or a cabbage, you've got a, like a stump <laughs> in your soil. And so you, you've got to figure out ways that you can work around that in, in your, your following crop. But there are things that you can do. You can work around it. I think it's worth it. Um, the, the fifth uh, principle for soil health is that diversity is, is more than, you know, the diversity that makes a soil healthy is more than just the plants. You know, the, the creation that God made is a complete creation. It's, it's plants and creatures and us <laughs> all together. And, and so a healthy soil, a soil is going to be healthier the more diversity there is around it. You want your garden to be as diverse as possible, um, to, to encourage as diverse um, a number of species of life as possible. Yeah, that includes not just animals, but insect species. Yes. Uh, you know, as much, oftentimes we look at insects as pests, and we're going we're gonna to have a session on pests and diseases and talking about how you can deal with pests and diseases. Um, but there are a phenomenal amount of insects that are actually beneficial to your garden that you want to encourage that life and diversity. Yes. In fact, um, for every insect species that is a pest, there are about 1,700 species that are beneficial. Wow. Yeah, yeah praise God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The... You know, you can think of it in this way. When you go to the... Uh, you all have seen videos or, I don't know, maybe some of you have been there, to African safari lands, right? For how many lions is there a wildebeest? Like there's a ton of wildebeest, right? For every one lion. Uh, that's what you see these huge herds of wildebeest and, and the other, uh, other animals there. It's, it's the same principle in the garden. You have those pests, but they're actually in a balanced ecosystem, we should say. In a balanced ecosystem, the pest would be a minority, a very large minority, actually, compared yeah. to the beneficials. So when, when pests become a problem, it's usually because we're growing a monocrop, right? And so the, the, there is a particular pest that, that likes that particular crop. It comes in and it has a heyday. Um, but if, if, we, if we grow in, in diversity, uh, things are more balanced. And, you know, for these, um, there, are, there are pests, and then there are, are lots of insects that are not pests, but then there are, are also insects 
that eat the pests. And um, we, we want to have this, we want to encourage as much diversity as possible so that we have habitat for those insects that eat the pests. And, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, we'll, you know. We'll, we'll talk about it more in the pest, okay. All right. pest one. Well, yeah. yeah. So, for example, an Iowa cornfield, a monocrop, it does have some, some species of, of creatures in it. You know, uh, grasshoppers and spiders and ants and things like that. Mushroom. But the native prairie that that, that monocrop replaced had this. It's a big difference. You know, this, this is what God created. And if we can move back in that direction as much as possible, um, it's just healthier. The last, the last principle for, for soil health is um, context. And context includes your environment, what you are given. Um, that, that includes your latitude. I, I'm, I'm going to talk, mention a number of things here. Uh, you know, don't, don't get overwhelmed by it. It's, these are just the things that you, you have to deal with. Your latitude, that, your latitude is what determines your day length through the year. Um, you know, if you're far north or far south, you have days that, that move from being very short to very long and then back again. Um, and that has an effect on, on plants and their growth. Uh, you have seasonal patterns. Uh, you have temperature patterns. You have wind patterns um, and weather patterns and rainfall patterns. Um, natural flora and fauna that you know what naturally grows in your environment all of this is is part of your your natural context uh, the lay of your land you know the the direction that it slopes and and that sort of thing um, your soil type and composition these are all part of your context you have to figure out what's going to work best for you in this context. Context goes beyond that. It includes your resources, what you have available to work with. Um, economically, you know, what, what kind of capital do you have to work with? What kind of income sources, amounts, markets, access to markets, that's particularly if you're wanting to grow for market. Um, secondly, um, you know, physical resources like, like tools and equipment and infrastructure, what do you have available? Um, that, that can all influence decisions that you make uh, regarding your garden. Context also includes your community, um, starting with, with family, neighbors, social groupings, government, um, all of this is, is your, your community and um, these different um, people and, and 
things in these groupings can have an effect on, on the decisions you make. Yeah, by the way, remember when we were talking about choosing what to grow and we mentioned it's a great idea to go to your local farmers and ask them, hey, what's the best variety of tomatoes that you've been able to grow in our local area? That ties into your context um, yeah. because your local area is going to be different than our local area uh, unless you live in the same area, right? Um, and so there are certain things that you will get the best answers from people who have a lot of experience growing right next to you. Yeah. And um, context in includes your spiritual or philosophical outlook on life, your, your worldview, um, your faith in, in, in the creator. You know, do you, well, do you even believe in a creator or not? That's going to affect... Um, a lot of decision-making, you know, how, how you see life. And um, if you believe in a creator, you also believe in the creation, right? That God had a purpose in creating things the way he created them. And, um, and you have, it leads to a faith in, in how the creation works because God created it. Um, so it informs, so all of this is uh, your context. Good decision-making requires a good understanding of your context. If you don't understand your context well, you can make decisions that, that won't work in your context. This next point is very important. You know, we, we cannot teach... Uh, there is no one-size-fits-all in agriculture <laughs> because every single context is unique. Isn't that amazing? You know, God, God makes us each unique as individuals and the context that you're working in is not duplicated anywhere else on earth. And you know, Dad, mm -hmm. I think that that's one reason why someone brought up the back-to-Eden method of gardening. Uh, that's one reason why we have heard from many people who have tried back to Eden gardening, you know, based on his little video that he did, and some of them have come back and given us raving reviews, and some of them have come back and said, I ruined my garden plot, nothing grows anymore, you see? And it's probably not so much the method, except it's more the context. So, in other words, there were probably things that you know, if, if they had done other things, maybe they could have put wood chips on their garden and it would have been a success. But because of their context, those wood chips um, ended up not being as good as... So, uh, now we do want to keep it simple for you so that you don't go home and just think, man, I, now I've got to figure out what my context is and I have no starting point, right? So, we do want to give you simple things that pretty much anyone can do in your area and... Um, the, one of the starting points is recognizing these six principles that we're, that we're, that we're going over. Yeah. So, yeah, principles can be applied across contexts. They can be applied in, in multiple different contexts, but the way they are applied is, what, is what's different. You know, what, how, how it's applied. For example, you're gonna, you want to grow a diversity of of cover crops, for example, but um, your diverse cover crop 
there's a good chance it might be different than, than mine would be because of your context. You know, what, what grows well for you is not the same as what grows well for me in my context. So those are the kinds of things we have to keep in mind. So these are the, the six principles. Um, reduce disturbance, armor on the soil, diversity, living roots, and integrating animal life. Um, and context uh, relates, it has an impact on your decision-making regarding each of these things, okay? So you, you want me wanna, to, yeah. Okay, so real quick, let me just see the pointer here. So real quick, this is, so you may be wondering, like, how impactful really are these six principles when it comes to growing, right? How many of you have heard of taking a soil test? I should ask, how many of you have been intimidated by soil tests? <laughs> okay, we, got, we have, uh, we have uh, at least one person here that was intimidated. So a soil test, basically, you get the numbers back, right? And they tell you how much nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, you know, those soil nutrients uh, are needed for your plants. Um, Gabe Brown, who we've mentioned before, he has a ranch up in North Dakota. Yes. And he... Uh, he's, we're talking about... I think he owns 2,000-some acres, and he's farming 5,000-some acres. Yeah. Since 2006, he has not put a single input into his farm. So that means no fertilizer, no... I'm talking both types of synthetic fertilizer or natural amendment type, you know, rock phosphates and stuff like that. No, no inputs of fertilizers whatsoever, no chemical inputs of, of uh, pesticides or herbicides, no input whatsoever into his farm except seeds, which I think he even, like, he sells cover crop seeds, so he probably yeah. uses some of his own seeds as well. The only thing is inputted into his farm is seeds, and he uses these six principles, including animals. He decided to do a test comparison with his farm and three other local farms in the surrounding area with the same context, same soil types, etc. right? So they did four soil tests based on these three other farms surrounding him and his farm. The first farm was a farm that used regular tillage. And, and the, the, the MD is medium diversity, so they, they had some diversity, but not extensive. And uh, the... I don't remember what ZS is for. I, the, the ZS is zero synthetics. Oh, zero synthetic Yeah, fertilizers. it was an organic farm. Yeah. So you can see there are numbers here of nitrogen, potassium, uh, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, this is something else. I, we don't have time to explain it right now. Then you have a no-till farm who practiced no-tillage. They did low diversity, though. They didn't do much diversity. Nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. A no-till farm, uh, medium diversity, but they used high synthetic uh, chemicals in their farm. Nitrogen, potassium, uh, phosphorus, potassium. This is Gabe Brown's farm here. No-till, high diversity, um, using livestock. As, zero synthetics. As, as well as zero synthetics. You can see his nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium numbers are astronomically higher, and that is without any inputs whatsoever into his farm since 2006. 
So that basically, in a nutshell, just illustrates that using these six principles will improve your, the soil health of your garden and will make nutrients available to your plants um, that other practices do not, yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. So I, I would say that I don't, I don't think Gabe Brown advocates that someone just cold turkey stop what they're doing and start this approach. They, they, they advocate a kind of a overtime transition. And even so, we, as we yeah. teach, you know, we are, we are moving more and more, you know, we are taking these six principles and implementing them in our garden, right? But even as we teach others, we do encourage people to get a soil test. You know, it doesn't hurt to get a soil test and to start out by, you know, adding some minerals to your soil. But over time, you should be able to move to a system that is the natural system that God created that maintains itself if you are able to incorporate those six principles. Okay, so we're going to talk briefly now about managing weeds with no-till. How do you do that? Um, the first thing is, is that by keeping the ground covered, you're going to reduce weed growth. Okay? Um, weeds like to have a certain amount of, of, of light to grow. By keeping the ground covered, you're, you're reducing that light. Secondly, I, I heard somebody explain this recently and it really made sense to me because I know that a lot of times the, the amount that, that the, the ground is covered isn't keeping out all of the light, but, but the, the weed growth is still reduced significantly. And... Um, what, what somebody suggested is that the, you know, when, when organic matter is being broken down, the, it, it takes a lot of microbial action and, and fungal action to break it down. And those microbes consume and tie up a lot of nitrogen. And so you don't have nitrogen free in your soil. And so if you have organic matter on the surface, right on the surface, you've got that tied up. And so that's not conducive to encouraging new life to grow. But, um, you know, right below the surface, it's not tied up and, and you can, um, it'll support the plants. So anyways, it is a fact that having something on the surface of your soil does reduce weed growth, and we've, we've seen it in our own garden. Um, so ways you can do that, one is you can space crops so that you have full coverage. Um, so actually, you know, if you, if you look at recommendations for, for plant spacing, usually they are, they're, they're based on that. You, the idea is that you want to have one plant, the leaves of one plant touching the leaves of the plant next to it. Not too close together and not so far apart that you have space between them. And if you get that full coverage, that's going to shade out your weeds and, you know, slow down weed growth. Cover crops are often also smother crops. You can use cover crops to, um, to eliminate weeds. 
For example, um, buckwheat is a, is a great smother crop. It's a, it, it germinates and grows very fast. You know, a lot of weeds grow faster than your crops. But buckwheat will usually grow faster than the weeds. <laughs> and, and so it'll, it'll jump out of the ground and, and just smother those weeds so that they, they just don't have light and they don't grow. And so if you, you can actually reduce your weed pressure by growing several successive crops of buckwheat. Now, one, one thing to be careful of is that, buck, like I said, buckwheat's very fast. That means it also goes to seed quickly. And um, you don't want your buckwheat to go to seed because it'll turn into a weed. <laughs> I, I, I had that happen, unfortunately. That's why I know to tell it to you. <laughs> um, the, the third thing is you can use mulch, like we've talked about. Just keep your ground covered with mulch and that will reduce weeds. Um, I don't remember if I have it listed later or not, but uh, another, another thing is that if you're, if you're tilling your, your soil, if you're, if you're turning your soil, like we mentioned earlier, you're bringing up weed seeds to the surface so that they can grow. If you're not turning your soil, um, the, the few seeds that are on the surface, when they get a chance to grow, they'll grow. And then, and then you, you know, you've used up the weed seeds that were on the surface and, and you're not going to have a significant weed pressure after that, as long as you're not turning the soil. Um, you, you will have the occasional weed seed that comes in from here and there, but it's not gonna be like before. Um, you know, using uh, mulches, hay and straw can be good as a, as a mulch. There, there, is, there can be an issue of seeds in the hay and in the straw. Um, that's, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth on that. Do I, do I want to risk it or not? <laughs> and we've, um, we've had some successes and some uh, failures on that where, you know, the the weed pressure coming out of the hay and straw was, was pretty bad. The one, the one good thing about, about having a mulch on the soil though, even if weeds grow, is they are so easy to take out. They, they just come out like, you know, um, uh, you know the, the soil under the mulch is very soft, so it's not holding onto those weeds. And so they're, they're, they are very easy to take out even by hand, just pulling them out. Um, Wood chips can be used, uh, and then also crop residue can be used. A lot of organic farmers um, and no-till farmers will, will grow cover crops and then just knock down the cover crop. And, and the, um, one thing, they, they, they'll use something called a roller crimper. It's a big barrel that goes either in front or behind the tractor, and it has, it has a I don't know what to call them, kind of like blades on it that, that stick out up from the barrel in a, in a chevron pattern. And, and it, it, as it rolls over the plants, you know, and it knocks them down, but it also, those, those blades crimp them and, and kill them. You know, a lot of grasses, uh, 
you, if, you, if you cut them, they just keep growing. That's what happens in your lawn, right? It, it just grows, it just keeps growing. So the, a lot of the other plants, you can cut them and, and kill them that way, but the grasses just keep growing. But if you, if you crimp them, that, that kills them. So uh, you can use compost also uh, as a mulch. Instead of digging the compost into the soil, just lay it on the surface as a mulch. Um, that, that works very well. And that's, that's what a lot of people do in, in no-till gardening is they'll just um, lay a, a thick layer of compost on the surface of the ground and then plant into that. Um, for managing weeds, when you, when you do have to, to deal with them, uh, one of our favorite tools is the stirrup hoe. It's shown right there. Um, it, you, can, you can get action out of it going both forwards and backwards. And, you know, it's, it's not like a hoe where you have to only come this way. And so that, that's a, a nice tool to quickly take care of weeds. Um, These tools here, stirrup hoe, collinear hoe, and wheel hoe, these are three of our favorite cultivating tools for cultivating weeds. Those you would only use in a situation of an unmulched bed or a bed that was mulched with compost. Um, if, you're, if you're using a mulched bed, like with, with straw or with wood chips or some other type of mulch, then you probably will need to go in and pull those weeds by hand or with some type of rake or something like that. Um, wood chips, you might be able to do it with a rake, but with, with straw, you'd probably need to pull those by hand. Like Dad said, it is much easier to pull them because the soil over time will be very loose underneath. And um, maybe I'll just th throw in this one example real quick. Um, and then, Dad, we may want to move the transitional crops to the next... Okay. to the next session. Um, but one, one example here about the soil being loose, we decided, to, or actually it's my dad's idea, so dad, you get the credit. Um, dad decided to put a, to experiment with a no-till bed in our hoop house, right? So we grew a cover crop, and we'll actually explain this in the next, sec in the next section, but we grew a cover crop, we cut it down, um, we tarped it so we made sure it was dead because we didn't want it to keep growing. The cover up. crop was, was wheat and peas. It was a winter cover crop. Yeah. And then um, my dad had the idea of just planting directly into the stubble, right? We've just got a bunch of dry, dead stubble in this bed. And I'll we, be... We cut the cover crop and took it out and composted it. And prior, prior to this experiment... Our normal way of preparing a bed is to go in with a broad fork to loosen up the soil and then to add any compost that we want, mix it in, etc. And I'll be honest, I was skeptical. I was like, we're going to plant directly into this stubble. I was like, Dad, we should at least broad fork it. I mean, we should at least loosen up the soil or something like that. But Dad really wanted to do it just as is and, and experiment. This was the experiment, right? So... We went in and we transplanted into this bed, and I, I'll be honest, it was, it, the soil was hard. I literally, with our little trowel, I had to chisel spots to put our little transplants and put the soil back over them. 
It wasn't as hard as it would have been if we hadn't had a crop Correct. in it. Yes, yeah. yeah, it wasn't like virgin hard, hard where it was just like packed soil, but it, it was, it, I literally, I mean, I had to chisel it <laughs> for, for those transplants. We then took it and mulched it. We actually used the biomass from that cover crop, and um, we'll explain it more in the next session, but we mulched it. At the end of the year, by the way, we, ha we had basically no weed pressure in those, in those beds, yeah. virtually none. At the end of the year, I pulled apart, this, this year, actually, no, last year, end of last year, I guess it is 2021, isn't it? I pulled apart the mulch, and I could literally push my hand right down into the soil, and it was just as loose as if we had broad-forked it, or looser than if we had broad-forked it. And that all happened without, without any work or effort on our part. That was 100% the biology in the soil loosening up that soil. Uh, it, 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 really, it really works, and it um, can make a huge difference in yeah. your garden. I'll, I'll just say also, we, we tried wood mulch on, on some flower beds in front of our house. The, the soil in where those beds were is, is very clay and rocky. It was hard and nasty soil. <laughs> it's it's not, not for growing in at all. But we, we wood chipped them and we, we, did, we were trying to grow flowers there and we had to water them through the summer. That, you know, they would just, they would die if we didn't keep them watered. We wood chipped them and never watered them again. Um, the first year, we didn't see any significant difference um, in, the, in the plants. But the second year, everything was, grew much bigger and, and better. And um, the soil underneath turned into, into really soft, loamy soil full of earthworms. It, it's just a night and day difference from what it used to be. Yeah. And so we've just kept, you, you have to keep adding the wood chips every year. But I, I, I really like wood chips in a, in a perennial setting when, you're, when you have perennials. I'm, like I said before, I'm, I'm not really sold on them yet for, for an annual, for, for annuals. And I think also that when it goes back to those principles of diversity, how much diversity can you get into your mulches? Um, yeah. You know, I think that the more diversity you have, the better it's going to be for you over time. You know, yes. don't just stick to just a wood chip. Gabe Brown, he's a far, the farmer up in North Dakota, right? He, he mulches with straw with, at first from his own farm. And because he, he ranches these large acres, but then he does like a home scale garden, although he sells from his home scale garden too. But um, he starts out mulching it with straw, but the life is so activated in his soil that within six weeks, his straw will be gone, completely gone with bare soil. So because it's so activated, he comes in and puts in wood chips because they break down slower. Uh, so he puts down wood chips over the rest of the summer and then uh, probably puts it back to straw or a cover crop um, when, when winter comes on the next end because those wood chips are, take longer to break down. So again, you know, you're balancing your... So, you know, if I was a home gardener, I would start out personally. I would start out by finding a mulch like straw, hay, or leaves that would have a faster breakdown and you would get a little idea of how activated is the life in my soil if it needs to be activated more and it would start helping 
jumpstart that process. Yeah, and in fact, the very best thing you could do is you could start out using a compost as using your mulch. A com yeah, that's right. Yeah, because that, that, that is activating your soil. The compost is, is rich in, in soil life and um, it's very nutritious and it's, it's partly broken down, so, or mostly broken down. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we were going to, in this session, uh, do a little section on transitioning crops, uh, making sure that one crop is dead before you put your next crop in so you don't have problems with weed pressure there as well. But due to the time, I think we should move that to the next, to the next section. I think that we can fit it in. Next time, we are going to talk about starting your starts. So... I know y'all have y'all been so patient in listening to a lot about soil and soil biology and soil health and how nutrients are put into the plants, etc. Um, so bless you for your patience in, in uh, listening to all of that. The reason why we cover that so much is because that creates the foundation of your healthy garden. If we you want, are going to have a healthy garden. We want you to understand and, what's actually happening so you can know why you're doing what you're doing. Correct. Yeah. And then... In these, next sex, in these next three sessions, we're going to talk a lot more about the practicals of how do you start your own starts? How do you transplant them successfully? What do you do with pests and diseases? How can you extend your season into the winter? We're going to have a lot more practical um, uh, sessions, hands, well, I wish we could get your hands on some tools <laughs> and stuff, but you know, you, you get the idea. And in, yeah, in those, in those sessions, as we go through the, the more practical parts Keep in mind that everything that you do in your garden, you want to do it in the context of those six principles, right? So be thinking about, uh, you know, when you're, when you're planting your starts, be thinking about, am I encouraging diversity in my garden? When you're growing your plants, am I covering, the, is my soil armored? Is it covered, etc.? These create the foundation for the decisions that we make in the practical parts. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.